You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show, an engineering company from right here in the region with a device to detect COVID-19 infection. And we're betting on you sticking around for Jim Lang's story about how casinos are preparing to safely open their doors. But we begin with a couple of heavy hitters from the provincial government. The Ontario government has allowed seven additional regions to enter stage three this past Friday, including York Region. Deputy Premier and Minister of Health Christine Elliott joins us on the feed. Thank you for being with us, Minister Elliott. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Anne. Well, COVID-19 and its presence uh, in certain regions makes it very difficult to move from one stage to another for some regions. So how did York Region end up being given the green light this past week to move to stage three? Well, we, the, the principal issue is the, um, the number of uh, cases, new cases that we see. And uh, so this is the, we see these totals on a daily basis. And the chief medical officer of health and the uh, public health doctors that are advising him, they look at the statistics right up until the Sunday evening and then make a determination whether they believe it's safe. And then they will announce on Monday that the following Friday, uh, the uh, York region in this case, along with seven other units, is able to move into stage three. Some mayors of municipalities within uh, York region have said not all businesses will be ready or able to open. And so that becomes a problem. What is the government prepared to do in order to help businesses be prepared to open safely? Well, what businesses have told us is that they need as much lead time as possible because if they've been dormant for the past number of months, that they need some time to uh, bring employees back to do the necessary cleaning and disinfecting that they need to do to develop the policies about how their business will be operated. So we try to give them as much notice as possible, but just the fact that businesses can open doesn't mean that they have to open as of the date that the region enters stage three. They can enter whenever they are ready to proceed. Restaurants and bars and crowding and a lack of physical distancing, that is a big concern for many businesses, particularly uh, those that are restaurants or, or bars. What advice have you to bar owners, restaurant owners, in terms of tackling, you know, the physical challenges, but also the emotional challenges? You know, there's a lot of pent-up energy in Ontario right now. Yes, and we've certainly seen a certain amount of, uh, I guess, uh, COVID fatigue, particularly in young people. But the reality is that we're not through this yet. Uh, just moving into stage three doesn't mean that the problem has gone away. And so we need to be very vigilant with respect to um, making sure that we keep physical distances, that we wear masks if we're not able to do that, frequent hand washing, and of course for businesses, particularly restaurants and bars, to make sure that they uh, do the proper uh, infection prevention and control, disinfecting, cleaning, and so on, that uh, customers need to be seated, that the physical distancing rules between groups needs to be observed. All of these things are still vitally important in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19 again. So, Minister Elliott, is the onus then on the business owner, the restaurant or bar owner, or is it on the patron? I would say that it's on both. The, the, the patron needs to understand that we need to continue to follow all of these rules and to um, and to follow the the rules that have been put in place by the proprietor of the restaurant or bar, whatever it is. And then, of course, the the owners of the businesses need to follow the rules that have been set out by the province to ensure everyone's 
health and safety. So earlier last week, there were approximately 203 new uh, COVID-19 cases in Ontario, the majority of which were in young adults. What does that information tell you and what does it signal? Well, it's it's very concerning, but as I understand it, um, a lot of these um, transmissions happen more at private parties rather than in restaurants or bars, but it, it establishes for me the necessity to, um, to keep reminding people that we are not through this yet, though different regions are entering stage three and we're, we're gradually reopening the economy, it, it doesn't mean that you can just go back to your usual ways. We still need to be on guard for COVID-19. It can still become a major problem again, and we all have to keep doing our work and following the rules uh, with respect to public health measures. Your leader, Premier Ford, uh, absolutely was uh, quite uh, vocal earlier this week uh, in saying don't party you know he's talking to young people and he's saying why do you need to party don't party how do you feel about that kind of uh of verbal uh, uh i guess warning uh that the premier is leveling to all young people in this province I agree with the Premier. It's still very, very important that people not get together in large groups or parties. Uh, if you want to see your friends, you can maybe see one or two people at a time and physically distance. But getting together in large groups is just very dangerous for, for their health, for the young people's health, but also for the health of their family members, for their parents, potentially for their grandparents. So if you're not thinking of your own health, please do think about your your family's health and please don't get together in large groups at parties. You have three sons, all young adults. They're triplets. They're the same age, but they're in that category that has now become a bit of a concern in terms of the transmission of COVID-19. What do you say to them, uh, your, your own children, about staying safe? I say the same thing to my sons that I say to all of the young people in Ontario. Please continue to follow the rules for everyone's safety. And uh, in, in their case, um, uh, I want them to think of me that because, uh, you know, it might not be dangerous to them, but it could be to me because I'm older. So it's, it's something that we really need to think about this in a, a very um, a thoughtful way that it's not just about um, young people going to a party and enjoying themselves. Think of the, the um, effect it can have on other people. How does York Region remain in stage three and not have to go back a stage? And really, I guess I ask that of all regions in Ontario. How, how do we continue to move forward without having to step back? Well, we really need to make sure that everyone continues to follow the public health rules uh, quite strictly. And, of course, we need the, uh, the businesses that are now able to um, operate, the uh, restaurants, in, indoor, in restaurants and, and in bars and so on, that they need to continue to follow the rules uh, with respect to physical distancing, um, having barriers, uh, plexiglass or whatever barriers they need in order to make Make sure that they can um, have the appropriate uh, safety measures in place for people, and of course, infection prevention and control with the uh, with the cleaning and disinfecting that's necessary of surfaces and so on. So that's the best way for us to uh, prevent the transmission of any further cases of, of COVID-19. You know, some people get the message and some don't. So the threat, the possibility of a second wave, does that? become a reality in terms of understanding why we have to adhere to the rules. Well, yes, absolutely. It is something that uh, we are preparing for at the Ministry of Health right now. The potential of a second wave, which I know none of us want to see, but we also have flu season approaching in the fall, and uh, we want to make sure that uh, every region is going to be prepared. We don't want to see um, high doses of flu or uh, certainly COVID-19, so it's really important that everyone can continue to please follow the rules. 
How are you preparing for a possible second wave? How are public health in each of the regions, how are they preparing for a possible second wave? Well, one of the things that we need to do is to make sure that we will have both hospital capacity, that we still have uh, a number of beds that are still available should we need them for people who uh, contract COVID-19 or even in some cases serious cases of the flu. Um, so we're making sure that we have sufficient hospital capacity, sufficient public health capacity too, to follow up on the, uh, the uh, tracing and so on to make sure that people are, are safe. We need to have uh, enough assessment centers that we can do the testing. And we've also introduced a new system that's currently being um, brought forward in all of the public health units of Ontario that directly connects the, um, the labs that are doing the testing of the cases with the public health units so that if there are positive cases of COVID-19, they can be identified very quickly and then acted upon very quickly. So I think that the, the, the speed and efficiency with which we can deal with these new cases helps um, prevent it from traveling further in the community so that we can contain it. Uh, test, trace, and isolate is, is what the goal is. So we're, we're moving forward on a number of fronts, uh, looking forward to the fall and, and uh, a potential second wave. And being prepared for it, because this time around when the pandemic hit, so many of us were just, we thought it was unbelievable and we were not prepared. Well, yes, we had um, some... Um, basic uh, basics in place because of what we learned from SARS, but we had to scale that up significantly in order to deal with the numbers of people being diagnosed with, with COVID-19. So we've got that in place now. Uh, we can right now test over 25,000 people per day. We have the capacity to go to 50,000 per day, and we also have the lab capacity to be able to um, make sure that the results can be returned within uh, 24 to 48 hours. And what are you hearing in terms of a vaccine uh, being created uh, and tested here in Canada? Well, I think we're all very hopeful. Uh, there are some vaccines being tested here as they are around the world, um, but I don't think we can count on that happening by any specific point in time. We have to continue with our good uh, public health rules and following, following them very closely. And uh, we'll all be very happy when a vaccine arrives, but um, we can't count on it anytime uh, in the the, the near future, I would say. So your government and uh, those who are ministers, including yourself, you're also Deputy Premier, you know, when you were given your portfolios and when you were given your jobs within the government uh, as a member of provincial parliament, you know, nobody knew this when they signed up for the job, that they would be having to deal with a pandemic. So how are you, how are you managing, how are you coping as Minister of Health, but also as Christine Elliott, mother, friend to many, uh, and uh, hardworking MPP? Well, thank you for asking. Um, it certainly isn't what I anticipated when I became Minister of Health, but uh, you um, you deal with what you have, and it's really important to me to continue uh, working on this file so that we can make sure that um, Ontarians are, are healthy and safe. Uh, for me, it's... Um, it's a lot of time um, at work, but I certainly look forward to spending my time when I can with my family and uh, um, with my sons and um, a few friends in my social circle. And, uh, you know, life goes on. So it's, um, I know this is a difficult time for everyone, and I really, really appreciate uh, the hard work that all 14.5 million Ontarians have, have put into this because people are being very considerate, they are being very safe and careful, and uh, we're just hoping that people can continue to do that. Um, this isn't going to be forever, but we still need to keep doing it now. 
And we must all remain on guard. Christine Elliott, Deputy Premier and Minister of Health, thank you so much for joining us on the feed and stay safe. Thank you very much, Anne. You as well. Earlier this week, indoor visits resumed at long-term care homes across this province with loads of restrictions and safety measures in place. Joining us now with an update on this and also the future of long-term care here in Ontario is the Minister in Charge, Dr. Marilee Fullerton. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate it. So a pretty big milestone allowing for limited visits. What effect do you hope this will have on the residents, the families, and really even the staff? Well, I'm just thrilled that people can be reunited. It has been a very long haul uh, for some people, and and some affected more than others. But to all the the residents, the families, and the staff that have been affected by this, it uh, my heart really does go out to them. And I'm I'm so happy that we're able to move ahead with this now. We've been following the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health and and making sure we're doing this in a safe and and uh, equitable way. And uh, I'm just happy to see this happening. Uh, for with the outdoor visits and now with the indoor visits. You know, we're talking about some of the most vulnerable people in our province. How do you protect them, particularly with this new step? And, you know, that's that's a big issue, and that's why we're continuing the testing for the indoor visits. So people will be required, if they want to visit their loved one in long-term care, to have a test uh, within 14 days. That does not mean having a test and waiting 14 days. It means having a test within that time. And we think that that's a reasonable balance so that we can provide some vigilance because without that testing, we know this virus can spread without symptoms. And so, you know, to our best efforts with the active screening and the temperature checking and the questionnaires, we know that the testing is a critical piece. And uh, and so I just thank everyone who is cooperating with that. It's so important that we follow these measures and stay vigilant and do everything we can to keep our, our residents and our staff in our homes safe. So I thank everyone for doing that. Long-term care homes were under the microscope during the worst of COVID-19, and we hope that the worst is over at this point. Uh, A lot of Ontarians worried and also demanding change when it comes to long-term care homes and the services that are provided and the care that is provided as well. What is your government prepared to do in order to make things better, safer, and have people in long-term care homes live longer and with quality of life? Yeah, and your your comment, uh, how do you make things better, that really is absolutely key to all of this. And our government started its mandate with a commitment to long-term care. Uh, we set uh, 30,000 beds in 10 years, and COVID has obviously you know interrupted our efforts because we started as a ministry of long-term care just in the summer of 2019, and we had a few months under our belt before COVID hit. Uh, but we have to modernize, bring long-term care up to the 21st century, We know from COVID that the ward rooms, those rooms where there's four people in a room, that the the highly, highly infectious nature of COVID-19 really is a problem in in those rooms. And those homes, some of them, uh, date back to the 1970s and 1972 standards. And so these must be redeveloped and we must build new capacity. So that is our commitment with the 30,000 beds over 10 years. Um, and, And we can build capacity without understanding staffing. It is absolutely critical that we support our staff in long-term care and understand the growing need for staffing. So to build spaces without the staffing, it won't work. We need both. And that is something also that we've been working on with the, the staffing study with our expert panel to get a staffing strategy uh, done. There's a report coming out very, very soon. And, uh, and this will be implemented by the end of the year. 
So really exciting, necessary, and uh, um, and COVID nineteen certainly certainly did um, have a, a devastating effect. Earlier this week, the Ontario Health Coalition released results of a survey. Ninety-five uh, percent of staff reporting that their long-term care homes were short-staffed and that many feel this results in very poor care for the residents. But what also really caught my eye was this, and I'll quote from the survey. The Health Coalition is warning Ontario's long-term care homes are not ready for a second wave of COVID-19. Well, you know, the the overarching goal is to put residents at the center. They deserve uh, the respect and dignity of a place that they can call home and where their needs are met and their needs are respected. And that is what we're doing when we're doing this transformation. I understand where the, um, you know, the, the criticism is coming from. This was a long-standing issue. Uh, the staffing in long-term care was really suffering for many, many years leading up to um, COVID-19. And that's why when we started as a new ministry, uh, we looked at the staffing immediately. So that staffing crisis was existing even before COVID-19 hit. And that's why it's so important that we we get um, this implemented. And so the staffing, this expert panel with the staffing study and then the staffing strategy, it's coming, but we absolutely understand uh, the imperative here. And that's why, as we speak, we're working on a stabilization strategy. And I also want to um, recognize the importance of essential caregivers, which are not necessarily the same as essential visitors, although they, they can be in some instances, but, but essential caregivers um, are really important as we move forward. And, and I want to make sure that they understand that, um, and that our staffing strategy will be implemented uh, and our, our report will be out soon. And this is a key part um, to providing support within our homes. This is a resident-centered uh, process and uh, this will be done. What did you think when uh, reports hit the media about the conditions uh, in some long-term care homes and, and the way that residents were treated or, or neglected uh, and the conditions under which they were living and in, w- in which they were living? How did that affect you as the Minister of Long-Term Care and also a doctor? What did you think? Well, you know, I go back to what you said about how do you make things better. And I spent my career helping people for almost 30 years. Went through um, long-term care with my own family members. And I started my own medical career in long-term care. And I know that there's been improvements along the way. But it was it was heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, just knowing that everything that was every lever, every tool that we could use, every measure was being applied to this and we still could not stop it. And it's an unknown virus, never before seen in this world and we are still learning about it. But clearly, the staffing crisis that preceded COVID as we went into this and the old buildings, the old wardrooms with four people to a room, this played a role. And, you know, could that be fixed instantly with COVID? No. Uh, But we used every measure possible, portals, volunteers. We worked through uh, nursing organizations and and groups. And uh, the the Red Cross, the uh, Salvation Army, um, and then realizing uh, that um, we needed the military assistance. And we we were quick to move on that. But the speed with which this virus moves is like, is unlike anything the world has seen before. The speed with which it affected homes, because at the beginning of a week, a home could be fine. And over the course of that time, uh, we would be getting um, the combination and collaborating with our hospitals to get those rapid um, rapid uh, teams in, the infection prevention and control teams in, activate public health, um, and even change the definition of an outbreak. So it just means one person, whether it's a resident or a staff member, uh, positive for COVID, and that's an outbreak, even if the staff member is isolating at home. So in some instances where there were outbreaks, there was not a single resident with COVID. In these homes that were very, very hard hit, the staffing crisis played a role. So we had people um, unable to come into work because they were sick or they were having to self-isolate because they'd been in contact or they were afraid. And so all of these things combined um, and when 
and when uh, the homes really started to spiral, some of them really spiraled quickly. So we knew we needed to bring in the military um, at, at the point that we did. Obviously, we'd like to have things move even faster, um, but it, it takes sometimes a few days. And uh, so that, what we saw with the, um, the armed forces situation was heartbreaking, and I wish we had have been able to get them uh, mobilized in a little sooner. But my my thanks and my gratitude goes to the Canadian Armed Forces for being there at Ontario's time of need. We're not the only province. If you look at Quebec, um, an even wider spread issue there. And fortunately, our homes in Ontario were not abandoned. Um, that we were able to get the military in when we did. And my uh, my deepest of gratitude to them. With all due respect, the premier has said that this is an inherited problem. Why was long-term care not one of the very first issues to be tackled when the government swept to power? Well, there was an attempt to get that going, but there was also a big uh, transformation going on um, with Ontario Health, Ontario Health teams, and congratulations to Minister Elliott for for shepherding that along. It's it's not easy to transform something that has been in a certain way for a very long time. And long-term care was a commitment by our government. Our government understood before we we got into uh, um, in June of 2018, and that's why it was on the campaign commitment about reforming long-term care. I think with so many other um, aspects to the transformation, it was a little harder to get going. And so those the beds that were allocated, they didn't get built initially, and this happened under the Liberals. They allocated beds, and they didn't get built. And so we had to take time as a new ministry to really focus on why that was, to understand that different regions have different needs, and the land costs and construction costs and development charges in, uh, say, a downtown area or a large urban segment uh, sector would be different from a rural area. So that's why we brought up this modern modernized funding model, um, which we went through a consultation process with the sector uh, and the number of different groups to understand whether this would work to get the homes built, because the government actually doesn't build the homes. We have to rely on um, the sector to build the homes. And, uh, and this is an important um, point, because the capacity that we need is, is significant, and we need to have a collaborative effort and a process. So these four market segments, it's large urban, urban, mid-sized, and rural, based on population size, these areas have different needs and different reasons uh, for obstacles to presenting themselves over the years. So really, if you look at um, 2011 to 2018, under the previous government, only uh, about 600 beds were built. And so why is that? And we had to understand the problem to come up with the right solution. And now that is starting, and we're, we're really getting um, some good, uh, good processes in place to streamline, get shovels in the ground faster, and get residents into these uh, spaces and beds, into their homes faster. It's absolutely about the resident at the center. But we had obstacles to overcome, and longstanding obstacles. That's the short answer. Improving long-term care homes, modernizing them, making them safer, uh, also creating uh, new beds. There are 38,000 people on the waiting list right now, baby boomers, and I believe that the leading edge is 1944 if you were born then, up to 1964 if I'm not mistaken. But we're now going to see a wave of baby boomers needing long-term care support. What is the future in your view, short-term and long-term, of long-term care in Ontario? Thank you, and that's such an important uh, question in terms of how do we modernize long-term care? What does it look like? And that's where we talk about transitions. People want to stay in their home as long as they can. And so whether that involves home care or other innovative programs that are going on and, and beginning around the, uh, the province. In, in Ontario, we have some programs that allow remote monitoring um, in the east, eastern Ontario. And these are very good programs that help keep people in their, their homes longer. 
So that's the, the first part. And then you look at, okay, so how do we transition into long-term care? What can that look like? Uh, how do we combine um, retirement homes, long-term care into campuses of care where people can stay together, where couples can stay together and get their needs met? So, you know, I lived this with my own family, my own parents, 60 years of marriage and having to be separated after all that time. And so we integrate, we make transitions easier, uh, and then when they need acute care, we also need to have that expertise available. And so our connections with, with hospitals have to be more seamless. There's a role for virtual care. We've seen that during COVID, how well that worked. I don't want to tread too much into Minister Elliott's areas, but, but understanding what people need in long-term care to have meaningful lives where their lives matter, where they can have their their friends, where they can have their relatives, and integrating that into a community so that it's not a place where you go to stay. It's a place where you go to live and have a home. And I spent 30 years, almost 30 years as a family doctor, and I can tell you that wasn't always the thinking. And um, this integration of acute care expertise with our long-term care homes, we've seen that during this uh, pandemic and how important that is. So campuses of care, better transitions, longer ability to stay in your own home with the right supports, and uh, compassionate care that really gives people meaning in life. And on that note, Dr. Marilee Fullerton, Minister of Long-Term Care here in Ontario, I say thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate your interest. It's a huge area, vitally important to so many people. Thank you. Time now for our first break on the feed. When we come back, a new device to detect infection and how the casino experience is going to have to adjust to the new normal. Stay with us. This is 105.9 The Region. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Tina Cortez now taking us inside a Richmond Hill company and their plans for an easy-to-use COVID-19 testing kit. Diego Lai is the CEO and co-founder of LIPAC Technology in Richmond Hill. Diego, thank you for joining us on The Feed. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your company? Uh, sure. Uh, LIPAC is a Canadian company started about 21 years ago in 99 and uh, myself and my family uh, we immigrated from Argentina or oh, I'm Taiwanese Argentinian Canadian now so yeah I can speak <laughs> different languages <laughs> so uh, we, <laughs> we started the company back then and uh, as an engineer and uh, and so we started my wife uh, Maria Pacini she's a co-founder so that's the name Lightpack. So can you tell us a little bit about LookSpot and what exactly it can provide? Uh, sure. Uh, LookSpot is a rapid test for COVID-19. So it is a very simple device. It's prepared for um, no skill required. Uh, anyone can do it. It can get the result within five minutes with an accuracy of 95%. So I understand that LookSpot obviously has not yet been approved by Health Canada, but how does it work? What does it test? Is it a temperature check? Is it a saliva test? Is it a blood test? What exactly is it? Uh, LookSpot is using a lateral flow assay. Uh, we call it LFA cassette. That is with that is antigen cassette. So we need to put a sample on the cassette to detect the colors, variation of colors. So the sample is taken through 
uh, node swap, and the very thin node swap, which take the sample, put into the buffer, and take out the liquid from the buffer, three drops on the cassette, and then cassette can be inserted into the device, which looks spot, and so we will be doing the ana analyzing of the images uh, in our server. So this is basically cloud-based technology. Wow. Where did the idea for LookSpot come from? Uh, this is a good question because the idea came when at the shutdown in March. So uh, we, we, we are a company, uh, we do a lot of telehealth applications and um, patient monitorings. So we were thinking how we can help here because, you know, there's a lot of people losing their jobs and, and we see a lot of people, you know, infected with COVID and including our families in Italy. And, you know, almost all of them were sick with COVID in March. Mm -hmm. So we were thinking about how we can, you know, how we can help here provide a rapid testing technologies, which can basically offer uh, businesses, uh, commerce, factories, or even school. And, and so they can have a screening before they can go into uh, you know the activities. So just to be clear, this is an easy to use device to detect COVID-19. Is that correct? That's correct. And you are a Richmond Hill company. You've been around for more than 20 years. Would this device be available for consumers? I know you mentioned that it could be available for companies or even schools, for the, for example. But is that your aim? Is to have it sort of available to everyone who needs it? Uh, yes, that's our that's our goal because and we have seen um, a lot of testing and and as our governments and, and our province doing a lot of screening. Um, but if we can do that screening, the testing on the spot, so then we can give we we kind of like we kind of know that person who's test negative is unlikely uh, to be contagious within the next 24 hours mm -hmm. so in that that period of time we can let you know everything to be reopened let's say the person can go back to the office you know can go back to to the factories and can can go into to to watch a sport game and and so that's the purpose and how much would the device or the test cost do you know at this point uh yeah we uh the cost of the per test and we think it's gonna be around ten dollars per test mm -hmm. and that's our goal I, again initially probably the cost can be a little bit higher but again that's when there's volume and and hopefully hopefully we can get the cost down and uh again that that's just a number for now yeah so LIPEC Technology, your company, of which you're the CEO and co-founder, you are currently waiting for approval from Health Canada. Any updates in that regard? Oh, uh, I think this is a process um, everybody has to go through, and I think this is a good process. And, and also, this is the first time for us, and, and uh, we're going to learn through the process. And, and so hopefully, you know, we can get this done. And, and uh, yeah, so we can we can use this product to help more people. Absolutely. Well, good luck. Keep us posted on what happens with Health Canada. And if our listeners want more information about your company, LIPAC Technology in Richmond Hill, where can they find it? Oh, it's our website, lipac.com. That's terrific. Diego Lai, CEO and co-founder, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Tina. Thank you. Jim Lang next with Casino's efforts to bring back the thrill of gambling safely. Well, this is exciting times for people in the region and all across the majority of the province as we enter stage three of our recovery from COVID-19. That means a great news for a lot of us who are able to get back to normal. And to talk more about our return to normal, thrilled to be speaking to Paul Burns, the president and CEO of the Canadian Gaming Association, as we are able to get back to casinos. Paul, how are you, my friend? I am great. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, Paul, and, and I know for myself personally, uh, when I hear stuff like we can go back to the gym, back to the casino, back inside a restaurant, all that hard work and sacrifice the last few months have paid off, and it feels like life was returning to normal. It, uh, it is for many. Um, unfortunately, for the casino sector, people are going to have to wait just a little bit longer. 
um, the capacity levels the province uh, uh, put on the casino industry is actually not economically viable for anybody to open at this point, limiting patrons, number of patrons to 50 at this point. And as you know, many of these facilities are rather large mm. um, and hold hundreds of people. And so we've been, uh, we are working with uh, public health authorities uh, to provide a, uh, information on the very detailed plans that the sector has come up with. The gaming industry has been working for uh, really a few months now uh, on return to play plans. And uh, we have very detailed, very thorough health and safety measures that we've developed that will provide protection for employees, uh, provide comfort and for customers knowing that they're coming to a very safe environment. We just need a little more time to work with public health to get them to better understand the capacity levels that, that we can actually effectively work with. Um, because the facilities are large, um, we can handle more patrons than 50. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's going back to full capacity uh, by any stretch, but we can take uh, and handle comfortably and safely more patrons. And so they want to see a little bit more information from us. We're in the process of preparing that um, to present to them. And hopefully next week we will get this solved. You know, Paul, I find when I hear casinos now, once upon a time it was sort of the dingy, dark, smoke-filled poker and gambling, but now it's become synonymous with fine dining, entertainment, great music. It's much more than just gambling now, Paul. It is. It is. And that's one of the things, unfortunately, we can't bring back some of the great things that people take part in. And that's the biggest one in Ontario has been live entertainment. Uh, facilities at, at Randall and Fallsview and Cedar Windsor have hosted great uh, international acts for years. And unfortunately, we won't see a return to, cus- to concert anytime soon. Um, but slowly, the restaurants are opening, uh, and we'll have work with limited capacity. And of course, the gaming floors, uh, we hope to see open very soon uh, to be able to bring people back so they can then have a, an evening or an afternoon out of entertainment. Speaking with Paul Burns, the president and CEO of the Canadian Gaming Association on the feed with the legend Ann Romer. Jim Lang speaking to Paul. And Paul, I, I think about the New World Order and a lot of restaurants and sports leagues and businesses have adapted. Can casinos adapt to have a patio section for dining, maybe driving concerts with bands outside of the facility, things of that nature? I think these are all things that everybody's exploring. I mean, the industry has been working extremely hard. Um, during this period, the industry in Ontario has now been closed for 18 weeks. Um, we want to bring the employees back to work as soon as possible. And, and so first and foremost on our list was being able to, one, go through a very rigorous health and safety um, plan so that people will, will, you know, obviously mandatory masks uh, are, are an important part of that. But they will see plexiglass between dealers and patrons. We'll see enhanced cleaning. And then as we get comfortable in bringing everybody back to that environment, everybody's starting to look at what else we can do. There are some casinos that have food and beverage outlets that have wonderful patios uh, right now that uh, in some cases have opened because they have separate entrances for the restaurants. Um, but others are looking at how they can adapt and what they can do to uh, provide that entertainment experience again uh, as best as, you know, as the previous normal was. So we're, uh, I have a lot of faith in the ingenuity of the industry. It's just going to take some time. You know, Paul, you didn't get to where you are by just, you know, leaving school and getting a job like this. Obviously, you've been in the business for a long time and been in business for a long time. When you see how COVID-19 has affected all of us, was there anything in your education, your background, your experience that prepare you for what we've been experiencing the last four months? Uh, no. <laughs> That's, uh, it's, uh, Jim, I've, I've learned more about um, cleaning protocols um, antimicrobial sprays and other um, uh, technology related to cleaning uh, than I ever dreamed I'd learn. And uh, while it's been an unfortunate uh, impact for the people that work in the industry that have not been able to come to work, and for many communities because of the um, the um, loss of income within the, the community, it's been tough. Uh, it has been a great learning experience for many, for me, for many in our sector. Um, we've been looking at new innovations around uh, introducing cashless payment technology to the gaming floor, which doesn't exist uh, today. So we're, we're, there's been a lot of 
opportunity that's come with this that both people will see the outcomes of with in, in the coming months and years. You know, when I you know, think about big casinos like Rama and Fallsview, approximately how many jobs would be involved just the day-to-day running of casinos like that when they're at full capacity? Uh, well, in, in Niagara Falls, there's uh, just about 2,700 at this point in time. Um, there's around 2,000, close to 2,000, I think, in, in Rama at this point. Across Ontario, there are 17,000 people right now that aren't able to come to work. And, and so that is a, it's a tremendous number. Um, it's a very labor-intensive business. Um, staff are a very, very important part of the success of casinos. And so it's been a very difficult period because um, whether it's we're like the rest of the hospitality sector, there's been literally no revenue for the gaming sector through this period because we haven't been able to, to be open. Food and beverage outlets have been closed. So it's um, it's been a very hard hard road for many and for the companies uh, operating um, have done their best through this period. No one plans to be closed um, for almost five months um, in their business plans. So it's, uh, it's been a taxing time, but everybody's we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, shall we say, and being able to open and invite guests back and begin the climb back to regular business. And just in closing, Paul, I, I know this has been discussed before and it's on the table. Uh, the sports book, the online sports book affi- affiliated with the casinos where you can maybe generate some income and do it virtually. Is, is that being pushed along the agenda? Is that closer to reality? It is, actually. We've had a number of discussions with the federal government in this period because in Canada, we've had a, a bill in the House of Commons that was introduced in mid-February to an amendment to the criminal code that would permit people to bet on the outcome of a single sporting event. Right now, we only have parlay bets, so you're betting on more than one event, two or three, through uh, the ProLine Sports Select products. Um, and so we're, we've been working hard with the federal government to say this would be um, a great uh, benefit for the, our hospitality, part of the hospitality sector. Uh, in the hospitality sector writ large, it's where people could bet on sports as we're going to get to see summer hockey and basketball and all the things we haven't seen before in the coming weeks. We'd like to come out of it with this product. And the professional sports leagues have been great. They reached out to the federal government in early June um, and asking them to say, we would like to see this happen as well. So we've got a lot of momentum. We're confident that in the next few weeks that uh, the federal government may actually pick up this bill and, and, and help it along because it actually costs nothing and would have a great economic benefit. As a sports fan, I'd be excited and I know it would be a big help for all the casinos. Paul Burns, the President and CEO of Canadian Gaming Association, uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, fingers crossed everything gets back to normal and we get back to enjoying uh, the great entertainment facilities throughout this province. Thank you, Jim, and, and appreciate you having me. Pleasure. Take care. Thank you. When we come back, we get in the game with sports and tech camps. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Afua Ba kicks it up at the TAC camps. Summer well underway, uh, but there's uh, still a whole lot of summer left to be had. And so joining me today to chat about uh, some of the summer programs that are still uh, underway and about to start before kids head back to school, Alexander Arthur, Director of Programming at TAC Sports. Alexander, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It is our pleasure. Okay, so first up, for those that may not know, Talk to me about what TAC uh, Sports is all about. So I, we're an organization. Um, we run camps, summer camps, and school programs year-round. Um, we specialize in having a lot of different options at camp, but specialized programming that uh, brings students through, um, through a, a quantitative plan and helping them get uh, get better in self-image and self-confidence and, and of course, sports skills um, during the summer. Awesome. So what's the age range for kids to be able to participate in these camps? 
So our sport camps run from ages four all the way to 16. Um, and we also have some technology options available for the older students as well, such as coding and 3D design that they can mix in match with their sport programming. Awesome. Okay, so a little bit of physical activity, a little bit of mental activity, just to go hand in hand. Exactly. What we're looking to do is build uh, leadership and and really give children the skills techniques and confidence to become leaders in in the world that's great okay and so uh, we know that summer camps have all already started and we know that uh, summer camps have had to adjust a little bit due to the COVID-19 pandemic if you can talk to me a little bit now about the protocols now in place to help keep campers uh, safe and healthy Absolutely. Well, uh, Ontario and Toronto, quite frankly, they did a really great job at outlining everything um, for summer day camps to, to open back up. So we were really excited to get started June 22nd once all the camps are opened up. We've been operating for five weeks according to the guidelines set out. Uh, so social distancing measures, all the coaches wearing masks. Um, and the kids have been having a great time getting back into in-person programming. So still a lot of friendships being made. Um, a lot of that summer camp vibe is, is well and alive at camps, just with a few more uh, precautionary measures. Uh, what is uh, TAC Sports offering in terms of their camp for August? So for August, we have uh, our three locations running, um, and we're always looking to add new locations as we go. But currently, we have uh, Bayview and Steeles. Uh, our St. Joseph Morrow location is a location that we usually had um, in other summers as well, too, and and that's uh, right in New York region. Um, and it's it's a beautiful outdoor it's got outdoor tennis courts, a beautiful outdoor soccer field, outdoor basketball, um, and dance as well, too. So it's got a beautiful campus. Um, and we have two locations in Toronto as well at the Northern and Marshall McLuhan schools. Sounds good. Okay. And then uh, can parents still register their kids to uh, attend these camps even from now? Or uh, would they have to wait for the camps that are about to run in August? Uh, so they can they can currently register now. And uh, we still have spots available. They do go quickly. Our capacity is more limited um, due to the guidelines and, and making sure that uh, we have everything outdoor and, and running at, uh, at the guideline capacity. Uh, so it would be recommended for parents to register now if they can um, and stay updated on our website for any uh, further locations opening up. Awesome. And then what about the online programs, too? Since that one is uh, more virtual, is there more sort of space open that they can just sort of sign up at any time? Absolutely. We have uh, the online programs, our, our coding program and uh, 3D design are have been very, very popular ever since uh, the whole COVID um, hit. And uh, kids have been really learning and, and able to expand. So really, the numbers are uh, unlimited there. We have a lot of capacity still for online programs. And we'll be continuing online programs in the fall and uh, the winter as we, we found um, that they're very popular and you can learn at any time. So I think even without COVID, they're still going to continue to be a, a popular option for kids. Absolutely. And we always got to make sure that they are uh, occupied in some sense. There's always sort of uh, things that are always trying to grab the kids' attention. So if there's any sort of educational way to sort of keep them uh, engaged, why not? So it's a it's a perfect way to get them in. Okay. Uh, where can parents get more information if they want to sign up, if they want to know more about TAC Sports and, and what you offer? Absolutely. So uh, they can go at any time to W www.tacsports.ca so just TAC Sports uh, with a CA at the end uh, and they can call 416-627-1092 and we have a full-time admin team even weekends as well too so they can call in at any time um, and we usually get back within within hours or um, anytime during the weekend as well too so parents can, can go online or, or give us a call anytime they'd like. Perfect. Alexander Arthur third director of programming for TAC Sports. Thank you so much for joining me today and letting me know about all of the programs that you offer and still all of the camps that are still available. Still lots of summer to be had. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Wish well, everyone. Thank you. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion for local news and so much more. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.